0: Oh, Welcome to the next episode of my podcast. This is a follow-up episode. In the last one I presented a preview of my book, A Philosophy for the Science of Consciousness. Originally I wanted to give um, a brief overview of the book um, and read out the preface as well as the first chapter. However, it did take quite a while and the video took, became longer than I anticipated, um, and so I decided to record a second one that focuses on chapter one. So the goal today is to read out at least a large chunk of chapter one that is freely available. As I mentioned before, you can download a preview of my book freely on my website. I'll have a link below in the show notes, and with this, let us dive write in, share the material. There we go. So as you can see here, you get the first 46 pages of my book. The end is the reference list. Um, And going here, we finished with the preface. It's worth mentioning that a lot of my chapters Um, of this book contain previously published material. Let me make this larger so you can read along if you so wish. Um, Otherwise, you'll get an audio-only version that can work nicely as well. Chapter one is an extended version of a paper published in Sinti's. Chapter three, um, chapter four, as well as chapter five, are based on three papers uh, published in Biological Theory and then smaller sections in different chapters are based on two BBS commentaries that I wrote, um, a journal called Behavioral and Brain Sciences that is very influential in the cognitive sciences. Um, so because those papers, with the exception of the BBS commentaries, are open access, If you're interested in reading perhaps more about the ideas of the book without having to buy it, uh, I'd encourage you to just read those previously published articles um, that contain many of the ideas. Um, But with that, let's dive right in. Now, acknowledgements. This book is the result of several years of thinking about consciousness and its evolution in Sydney, London, Munich, Cambridge, Oxford, and finally Bristol. This is where I started my postdoctoral position um, just after um, submitting um, my PhD thesis. Um, And while philosophy is often described as an ivory tower activity, this could be no further from the truth for naturalistic philosophy. And I've benefited greatly from the advice and feedback from scientists and philosophers alike. During this time, I have been in contact with more people than I could mention here. So I preemptively ask forgiveness from anyone I have forgotten to mention. Since this book originated from my dissertation, I would like to thank all of my doctoral advisors for their help and consistently constructive criticisms. Firstly, my primary supervisor, Paul Griffiths, who helped the development of my dissertation immensely with his wide range of expertise, humor and ultimately funding from his ambitious A philosophy of medicine for the 21st century project. That supported my PhD, for which I acknowledge funding from all the Australian Research Council's discovery funding scheme. And secondly, Peter Godfrey-Smith, whose work inspired me to write a dissertation on animal consciousness and whose feedback and extensive knowledge of the field have been incredibly helpful. Thirdly, I would like to thank Marion Dawkins, Professor of Animal Behavior at the University of Oxford, who kindly agreed to serve as an external advisor for roughly um, the last half of the duration of my PhD. Now, while we eventually gave up on formalizing this status due to excessive paperwork, she nevertheless deserves mention here for her role as an informal advisor and her helpful feedback on my dissertation. Turning a dissertation into a book is far from an easy endeavor, and I've benefited greatly from exchanges with members of the University of Sydney. Being part of Griffith's wonderful interdisciplinary theory and methods in the biosciences group at the Charles Pergen Center, one of Australia's leading medical research institutes, enabled me to present my work multiple times to an entire group of philosophers of biology and to grow into an interdisciplinary researcher with a firm understanding of evolution. Indeed, this book very much reflects the mission of this philosophy lab to employ the integrative power of biological theory and especially evolutionary biology, to remove conceptual and methodological roadblocks to the advancement of science. Next, I would like to acknowledge four host institutions that I visited during my PhD. Firstly, I would like to thank Jonathan Birch, who hosted me for a term in his Animal Sentience Lab within the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science at the London School of Economics, which provided the perfect place to discuss the ideas of my dissertation. Secondly, I would like to thank Stephen Hartmann, who hosted me for roughly two months at the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University uh, of Munich, where I delved deep into the possibility of a mathematical framework for consciousness, taught a course in the history and philosophy of life sciences, and was eventually honored with the status of external member. Thirdly, I would like to thank Nikki Clayton for letting me visit her comparative cognition lab at the University of Cambridge, Department of Psychology, for almost half a year. Observing actual research in animal cognition, engaging with researchers at her lab, have been incredibly helpful in writing my dissertation and this book. The featured bird on the cover is a common raven, Corvus corax, and belongs to the family of Corvidia which will be discussed later in this book. Not in chapter one, however. I would very much like to thank Francesco, uh, Francesca Cornero, a PhD student at Clayton's Comparative Cognition Lab, for allowing me to use her photograph for the cover of this book. Lastly, I would like to thank Rob Salguero-Gomez for hosting me in his life history. Um... hosting me in his life history team at the university of oxford department of zoology and later the new department of biology which helped me to dive into the depths of life history theory i have also presented ideas of this book to audiences at meetings of the association for the scientific study of um, consciousness the international network for economic method the International Society for the History, Philosophy, and Social Studies of Biology, the Australasian Association of Philosophy, the Joint Brazilian Annual Ethological, uh, combined with the Latin American Ethological Conference, and the Power of Sense workshop, uh, so coin organized by Apopo at the University of Agriculture in Tanzania. Um, which was followed by a safari in the Mikumi National Park, Um, simply the perfect place to think about evolution and function of consciousness. Furthermore, I would also like to thank audiences at a keynote I gave at the 16th Universities for the Racial of Animal Welfare, UFA student conference and research seminars at uh, um, Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich and the University of Bayreuth. For comments, I also owe gratitude to Dan Dennett, Nicky Clayton, Jonathan Birch, Christine Andrews, David Spirit, Don Ross, Colin Allen, Stefan Gawarowski, Kate Lynch, Peter Takaks, Carolyn Risto, as well as reviewers for the previously published article versions of my chapters. Furthermore, I would also like to thank Samuel Kasha, who has supported me both as a master's student at the University of Bristol in their Philosophy of Biological and Cognitive Sciences program, and now as a postdoctoral research associate on his Representing Evolution project, for which I also acknowledge funding from the European Research Council and the European Union's 2020 Research and Innovation Programme. Now, returning to Bristol has provided me with the perfect place to turn my doctoral dissertation into an accessible, expanded, and improved monograph. And I would also like to express my thanks to Anonymous reviewers at both Routledge and Palgrave Macmillan for their feedback on the drafts of this book. My editor, Andrew Weckenman, likewise deserves uh, my gratitude for his help and encouragement in turning my thesis into a book accessible to a wide audience. The editorial team at Routledge has done an excellent job at bringing this book to fruition. Lastly, I would like to thank my fiancé. Thankfully, now I can say... My wife, uh, we had a very nice wedding in December, uh, September, and frequent collaborator Heather Browning for her unending love, brilliant feedback, and for proofreading and copy editing. This book has greatly benefited from innumerable discussions with a philosopher of her caliber. Now, um, a foreword was graciously written by Nikki Clayton. And I'll read this out here. Nikki Clayton writes, This book is a fascinating read for anyone who is interested in questions about consciousness from a biological and psychological perspective. It is also of great appeal to a much broader audience, e.g. those who are interested in the interdisciplinary nature of cognition and consciousness, those who adhere to the importance of philosophy in addressing scientific issues, and those who promote other interdisciplinary endeavors such as the integration of science, arts and the humanities to address big picture questions about the awareness of being, the questioning of realities, the subjective experience of seeing, feeling, doing and thinking. In terms of the interface between philosophy and biological sciences, questions about consciousness abound. What aspects of awareness might we share with other members of the animal kingdom? What might it be like to have thoughts without words and reflect on these metacognitive processes, such as mental time travel, the ability to think about how our thoughts change in other times, both past and present future, um, and theory of mind, the ability to be aware that others may have the same and different thought processes uh, to our own. What are the evolutionary origins and functions? Or, in other words, how and why have these abilities developed through evolutionary time? How should we consider diverse intelligences within the framework of consciousness? Nagel famously posed the question of what it's like to be a bet. And many skeptics would agree that we can never know for consciousness. Uh, is a private thought, modulated by personal past experiences and emotions and hopes and dreams about our subjective thoughts and imaginations of how the future may unfold. Recent developments in the psychology of comparative cognition in evolutionary biology and in philosophy of mind, however, add important insights and significant progress. Um, In this field. And, there are, and these are issues with which Walter White discusses so elegantly and accurately in this book. For example, recent work in comparative cognition over the past couple of decades has provided persuasive evidence that some non-human animals are capable of mental time travel from Corvitz, members of the Crow family, including the raven pictured on the front cover of the book, to cephalopods, cuttlefish, octopus, and squid. Now, work in evolutionary biology in combination with neuroscience and philosophy has also made a significant impact, such as the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness in 2012, and the formation of the first interdisciplinary journal of non-human consciousness, Animal Sentience, in 2015. One should also note the recent work on animal welfare and cognition and its significance for developing a new UK Animal Welfare Sentience Act in 2022, based on the impact of recent developments in animal welfare and cognition. Situated within a philosophical framework of the dimensions of animal consciousness, a framework that Nikki Clayton herself has been um, influential in developing. In the preface, Walter White clearly states the book's objective: namely to formulate and develop a biological science of consciousness that focuses on the evolutionary origins, function, and phylogenetic diversity of consciousness. And catapult such a framework from the sidelines to the very center of considerations about the science of consciousness. Walter White is exceptionally well-placed to achieve this goal and to integrate these disparate fields, given his background in philosophy and his experience in also working with experts in biology and psychology. The book also provides a historical approach to the field with its origins, e.g. in the seminal writings of uh, Donald Griffin, as to why biologists should be interested in questions of consciousness in non-human animals, not to mention the importance of philosophers such as Dan Dennett, Jonathan Birch, and Peter Godfrey-Smith, evolutionary biologists such as Charles Darwin and Eva Blanca, and animal behaviorists such as Marion Dawkins and myself, to name just a few of the influences. Like most scientists studying consciousness, Walter White's approach is to treat consciousness as a complex biological phenomenon that has been developed over the vast history of evolutionary time. That said, his approach is novel and exciting because he offers an intriguing strategy, namely to consider animal life histories as well as focusing on the healthy and pathological varieties and gradations of consciousness as a complex phenomenon in nature. The argument is that one should deploy an evolutionary inspired bottom-up approach to investigate whether non-human animals have different dimensions of consciousness and to what degree as opposed to a top-down investigation of whether evidence of non-human animal awareness meets the criteria for human consciousness. He argues that animals may have subjective awareness at various levels of perception um, of vision and touch, as well as the evaluation of hedonic value of experience and the way in which they may be able to integrate these experiences and explore our motivational trade-offs and decisions now and in the future and what might might mean for the understanding of the subjective nature of the projection of the self in time. In doing so, he truly integrates the philosophical with the biological and the psychological. Why philosophical? Suffice it to say... This is all set within a framework of hermological and pathological complexity and how this results in the final crowning chapter of the Darwinian Revolution. I shall reveal no more. It is up to the reader to discover and decipher. What I would say is that it is a beautifully written book full of surprising insights and marvelous metaphors and wonderful titles that inspire and intrigue. I recommend this book in the highest possible terms. Nicola S. Clayton, Professor of Comparative Cognition at the Department of Psychology, University of Cambridge. Um, I'm very thankful for such a um, wonderful foreword. Couldn't have been better for my first book. I'm very thankful to Nikki Clayton here. And now let's move forward. I will read out most of chapter one unfortunately the preview only um includes most of this chapter some is cut out um but um my book is of course available um for download or purchase um on Routledge's website or amazon or in perhaps your local bookstore so If you're interested in the content um, that I'm about to read, or perhaps from what I've previously discussed, you can, of course, uh, buy it, Um, but don't feel under any obligation to do so. All right. Let us dive into chapter one, A Darwinian Philosophy for the Science of Consciousness. 1.1 Introduction. This monograph is a philosophical contribution to the emerging science of animal consciousness. It is a science that a prominent American ethologist, Donald Griffin, tried to establish in the 1970s, when he called for a cognitive ethology that applies Darwin's lessons to consciousness. And here a block quote by Donald Redfield Griffin, 1998, page 14, most of Darwin's basic ideas about evolution are now generally accepted by scientists, but the notion that there has been evolutionary continuity with respect to conscious experiences is still strongly resisted. Overcoming this resistance may be the final crowning chapter of the Darwinian revolution. Beyond the quote, but even after a decade, but even a decade after his death. With the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness in 2012 and the formation of the first Interdisciplinary Journal of Non-Human Consciousness in 2015, aptly titled Animal Sentience, we remain far from achieving a Darwinian study of the mind. The goal of this book is thus to advance Griffin's vision of the final crowning chapter of the Darwinian revolution by helping the burgeoning field of consciousness research to cast off the chains of a pre-Darwinian view of the mind in both philosophy and science. This will allow us to transition towards a true Darwinian science of consciousness in which the evolutionary origin, function and phylogenetic diversity of consciousness are moved from the field's periphery to its very center and enable us to endogenize consciousness into an evolutionary view of life. In the preface I have emphasized that there are two senses in which we can ask about the place of consciousness in nature. One concerns the presence and contents of minds in nature and the other the relationship between matter and mind. The former has been called the problem of other minds. The latter is the familiar mind-body problem. Two problems to which answers vary so incredibly widely that many are under the impression that there is no standard according to which we could even begin to sort out which views are likely going to be wrong. It is in this context that one may be forgiven for thinking that the historical question of how consciousness evolved constitutes anything but an additional problem that only further complicates the picture. Yet, it is precisely in the modern 21st century theory of evolutionary biology that we find the much-needed standard that the science of consciousness was so desperately lacking. In order to develop a true biological science of consciousness, we must attend to the cognitive pathologist's demand to address the functionalist question of consciousness in all of its diversity and gradations. Thus, for healthy agents within the normal ecological lifestyles and the natural environments they have evolved in. Accordingly, this book has two objectives. To argue for the need for and possibility of an evolutionary bottom-up approach that addresses the problem of consciousness in terms of the evolutionary origins of a new ecological lifestyle that made consciousness worth having. And secondly, to articulate a thesis and beginnings of a theory of the place of consciousness as a complex evolved phenomenon in nature. This thesis can be succinctly summarized as follows. The pathological complexity thesis, which states, the function of consciousness is to enable the agent to respond to pathological complexity. Inspired by Godfrey Smith's, environmental complexity thesis that sought to establish a link between environmental complexity and evolution of cognitive complexity, here quoting from his 1996 book, page 3, the function of cognition is to enable the agent to deal with environmental complexity. Opposed to that, the pathological complexity thesis is grounded in the idea that health and consciousness are two closely related natural phenomena Not only will I argue that the origin and function of consciousness lie in the capacity to help complex but vulnerable animals deal with their species-specific health uh, challenges to seek out the beneficial and avoid the pathological, but also that the naturalist understanding of this biological normativity requires the development of a Darwinian theory of the organism that will in turn allow us to make sense of organisms as active agents and subjects." including their subjective experience, as an integral part of our biological understanding of what makes a bat a bat, a snake a snake, and a healthy bee a healthy bee. 1.1.1. 1. 1. Pathological and phenomenological Complexity The pathological complexity thesis is intended as a functionalist alternative to the false dilemma between the two dominant traditions in the philosophy of mind and the science of human consciousness, that is between strongly externalist, representationalist theories of consciousness that overemphasize sensory experience and strongly internalist ones that overemphasize self-awareness as the models for all experience. Instead, the pathological complexity thesis seeks to develop an alternative model of consciousness based on a model of animal sentience. Because of the associations of the term consciousness with the complexity of the human mind, the term sentience, coming from the Latin verb sentia, that is to feel, it is often inferred among those with a primary um, interest in animal consciousness, precisely because um, it leaves out these uh, idiosyncratic human features of consciousness, to make that clear. The term has not received universal endorsement, however, because it's often used ambiguously as, firstly, a deliberately broad and inclusive concept to refer to all kinds of subjective experiences, Secondly, a reference to the most minimal kind of subjective experience found to the evolutionary origins of consciousness. Or thirdly, the hedonic capacity to feel pleasure or pain. Here we can avoid these ambiguities because this book will combine all three interpretations. The origins and raison d'etre of minimal consciousness or qualia lie in hedonic evaluation as valence, rating experiences as good, neutral, or bad. Sentience in this evaluative sense is an inherently interactionist or perhaps better dynamic dimension of consciousness. Moving to pathological complexity. Pathological complexity is neither an internalist nor an externalist measure but emerges dynamically from the interaction of organisms and their environments as a measure of the complexity of an organism's life history strategy and will hence vary with the different lifestyles of different animals. It can be understood as the computational complexity of the Darwinian trade-off problem faced by all biological agents as they deal with challenges and opportunities throughout their life histories in order to maximize their fitness. As I shall argue in this book, consciousness evolved during the Cambrian explosion 540 million years ago, alongside a new evaluative animal lifestyle, characteristic of large parts of the Metazoan branch of life, as an adaptive response to a computational explosion in just this kind of pathological complexity that made sentience worth having. Importantly, I use the term pathological complexity instead of the equally adequate and perhaps less confusing terms, teleonomic complexity and life-history complexity, not because I want to make the argument that organisms with greater life-history complexity are unhealthy, but because I want to emphasize that it is only an understanding life-history trade-offs that we can distinguish healthy from pathological trade variations of of traits, and that includes variations of consciousness, both within and across species. That is what I shall term phenomenological complexity. Unlike other theories of consciousness that struggle to make testable predictions, the pathological complexity thesis offers us a conjectural empirical framework for the relationship between mind and life by linking properties of phenomenological complexities such as sensory experience, self-awareness, hedonic feelings, points of view, and mental time travel to properties of pathological complexity. (laughs) A deeper understanding of what makes varieties of consciousness healthy and pathological will be of utmost importance for extending the Darwinian revolution towards consciousness, which is why parts of this chapter will be dedicated to explicating health as a natural phenomenon. operationalizing pathological complexity in terms of the number of parameters and constraints in evolutionary optimization problems studied by state-dependent or state-based behavioral and life history theory offers us an elegant framework to naturalize health organisms and the idea of different ecological lifestyles central to a Darwinian approach Um, of life and mind. It is my hope that the thesis of this book will provide us with a fruitful hypothesis and framework to move us closer towards a comparative science of animal consciousness that can help us to make sense of the place of mind in nature. Now, chapter outline. This chapter is organized as follows. Section 1.2, Some Preliminary Remarks on Organism's Health and Philosophical method. Offer some metaphilosophical reflections about naturalist philosophy and how we can make progress despite resistance to understanding notions such as health and consciousness from a Darwinian point of view. Section one point three: Lessons from the Darwinian Revolution: Defense and extension of the Darwinian program towards animal consciousness by placing it in its historical, methodological, and social context. The history of the Darwinian revolution for biology and psychology will offer a number of important scientific and philosophical lessons and building blocks for the pathological complexity thesis that will accompany us throughout this monograph. Section 1.4, Carrying Darwinism to Completion, combines the foregoing lessons from the Darwinian revolution with modern state-based behavioral life history theory To build a theory of health, organisms, and ecological lifestyles grounded in pathological complexity that can be used to endogenize consciousness into the Darwinian revolution. Finally, section 1.5, outline of the book, concludes with an outline for the next five chapters describing how pathological complexity will allow us to make sense of the place of phenomenological complexity in nature. 1.2. Some preliminary remarks on organisms, health, and philosophical method. While my suggestions to link health and consciousness in terms of an association between the biologically normative properties of pathological complexity and the phenomenological complexity of organisms will be intuitive to many animal consciousness researchers um, focusing on sentience and evolution, many contemporary philosophers may find it strange. Just as consciousness constitutes the perhaps core problem in the philosophy of mind, the proper definitions of health, pathology, and normal functioning constitute the fundamental problems in the philosophy of medicine. This is plausibly part of the reason why philosophers of mind have been so reluctant to seriously consider evaluation, an inherently normative notion, as the most basic form of consciousness. After all how could one hope to address one of the biggest problems in philosophy by solving another seemingly unrelated problem in an entirely different field? An immediate concern should be that it is one thing to aim for progress on one of the major philosophical debates, but it is quite another to undertake the task of making progress on two of its most disputed controversies. Furthermore, the idea that these vexing phenomena share an intimate, yet, but yet unexplored connection may strike some more traditionally inclined philosophers as a bizarre project. Philosophy in the eyes of those within the tradition of Bertrand Russell's, decompositional compositional style of analytic philosophy, see it as engaged with the detailed and narrow, rather than with the general and broad, but this is not a vision of philosophy that I endorse here. Let me have some water. 1.2.1 A Darwinian Philosophy of Nature This monograph follows a particular naturalist style of doing philosophy that is common in the sphere of Australian philosophers of biology and psychology. It is advocated by Antipodean philosophers such as Kim Sterelny, Paul Griffiths and Peter godfrey Smith, but also embodied by the likes of Daniel Dennett and Ruth Millikan, in which the biological sciences, in particular, modern evolutionary theory, become an instrument for the materialist philosopher. Lens, through which we look at the natural world, as Godfrey Smith puts it, 2013b, page 4. Godfrey Smith has also called this activity philosophy of nature, to reflect the older ambitions of the German tradition of Naturphilosophy, to combine science and philosophy, to make sense of the world and our place in it, though without excess romanticism and metaphysical speculation, which nicely describes the project of this book. The intended task of the philosopher here is to synthesize rather than to analyze the products of the sciences, in order to construct better theories and models, which brings it in many ways indistinguishably close to the kind of integrative work done by important scientific names, such as Darwin himself. Indeed, this book is very much motivated by the idea that we can endogenize uh, consciousness within modern evolutionary biology by following in the footsteps of Darwin and his followers. But my ambition is not merely scientific, it also has a distinctive philosophical flavor that was once beautifully expressed by Richard Rorty, who described philosophy as being in the unique position of providing the only place in the universe where a student can bring any two books from the library and ask what, if anything, they have to do with each other. I will not read out the footnotes here. Um, nevertheless, I'd encourage you to check them. After all, this PDF is freely available. This comparative and integrative ambition is very much the spirit of this big picture book on the connection between pathological and phenomenological complexity across the animal branch of life. But before we can even begin to invest instigate such an investigation, we first need some conceptual grip on the nature of our target phenomena. 1.2.1.1 1. What is health and consciousness? One immediate philosophical problem for any biological investigation of consciousness and health is that the terms consciousness and health are notoriously ill-defined. The cognitive ethologist Franz De Waal, for instance, notes in um, Not to Make Any Firm Statement, uh, Prefers not to make any firm statement about something as poorly defined of consciousness. No one seems to know what it is. 2016, page 23. Former zookeeper and animal welfare expert turned philosopher Heather Browning similarly expressed skepticism that health reflects any naturalistic uh, naturally existing state instead of a mere cluster of different phenomena. 2020, page 164. If they are right, the pathological complexity thesis seems to rest on shaky ground, built to connect two phenomena that may not even exist. But the absence of precise definitions for either should not stop us in our tracks. Both terms, as used by the public, may be vague, ambiguous, and resistant to the analytic philosopher's ideal of a conceptual analysis that could provide us with a clear-cut definition. Indeed, If one's goal is to provide a definition of the term that would cover its varied usages, one may be tempted to conclude that we would be better off eliminating the concept altogether. But my goal is not conceptual analysis, it is conceptual explication. See, for instance, Carnap, 1950, or as I have called it elsewhere, naturalist conceptual engineering, Fight and Browning, 2020. We're trying to capture a phenomenon nature for which the neurophilosopher Patricia Churchland, 2020, um, uh, 22, suggests that we should simply rely on common sense to establish provisional agreement on a number of unproblematic examples of consciousness, page 133. There is no need to provide a philosophically satisfactory concept of consciousness or health before we can begin to investigate them any more than we would need to define the concept of koala, before we can learn about the enjoyment of eucalyptus leaves. Scientists repeatedly proceed to investigate phenomena that have so far remained elusive, proving that vagueness need not be an obstacle to scientific inquiry. Neto 2020 In this naturalist activity, it is ultimately nature, not intuition that will decide how we should understand consciousness. Precisely because, as Victor, 2018, argues, we, quote, lack widely accepted theories and models that can organize and articulate the pre-theoretic consciousness-related concepts we are using to guide our initial investigations, quote, end page 10. Following Churchland, 22, 2002 we can confidently reply that we can at least initially quote use the same strategy here that we use in the early stages of any science delineate the paradigmatic cases and then bootstrap our way from there quote end page 133 paradigmatic cases of consciousness there are plenty pain pleasure smell vision taste a sense of one's body and memories, alongside a whole other range of subjective experiences. Similarly, we have some intuitive grasp of health and pathology in humans and animals alike, such as diseases, broken bones, lesions, parasites, burns, poisons, maladaptive behavior, and other biological wrongs. Even if we have struggled to derive something like a folk theory of health. So it is perhaps unsurprising that we can also intuitively distinguish healthy subjective experiences from unhealthy ones, such as major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, aphantasia, synesthesia, autism, schizophrenia, prosopagnosia, chronic pain, and many more. Yet, many philosophers of medicine would deny that health is a natural phenomenon, Thus, perhaps providing an explanation for why philosophers have given so little attention to the search for the origins of consciousness in the normative notion of evaluation. 1.2.2 Resistance to naturalism in the philosophy of medicine. Despite naturalist views being discussed by philosophers of medicine, the assessment is largely negative. <coughs> and most within the field, now maintain that health reflects personal valuations or the values of society at large. A consensus that health is primarily a normative concept, rather than only an objective biological property of organisms. Such a view may have been dominant ever since the French historian of science and first modern philosopher of medicine, George Kangelam, 1991, argued in his influential treatise *The Normal and the Pathological* that, quote, "There is no objective pathology. Structures of behaviors, uh, structures or behaviors, can be objectively described, but they cannot be called pathological on the strength of some purely objective criterion." Page 226. Others, like Leonard Nordenfeld, 1995, who emphasized their concept of agency, have argued that health cannot be understood in a reductionist, naturalist way, and instead requires a more holistic conception, where it is understood as the ability to achieve one's vital goals. Phenomenologists, such as Harvey Carell, 2007, have similarly argued that experience of illness cannot be captured within a naturalistic view page. 95. Such strong assertions against the very possibility of a naturalist account are surely premature, and yet can be found throughout the literature, effectively na- making naturalism a boogeyman of the field. Rarely has there been a philosophical debate in which naturalism has been so forcefully and unceremoniously dismissed. This anti-naturalist consensus in the field can be usefully summarized as an appeal to the irreducibility of 1. the normativity of health and disease, the loss of agency in health and disease, and 3. the phenomenology of subjective experience of health and disease. But who is to deny that these features can be part of a naturalist account of health and disease? Naturalist philosophers have long worked on attempts to make these notions of normativity, agency, and phenomenal experience safe for naturalism. What all of these anti-naturalists curiously share, do not necessarily all other philosophers of medicine opposed to a naturalist view of health, is an emphasis on subjectivity. Akin to those who view naturalist explanations of consciousness as deeply problematic, They argue that the very idea of a naturalist account of health and disease is mistaken. They hold that one cannot account for health and disease from the objective, third-person perspective of science, since they are phenomena at the level of a subject, not an object, and science cannot account for the former. A view familiar from so-called naysayers who assert a scientific account of consciousness to be impossible. This view, this way of thinking about naturalism however is highly problematic. Subjects aren't some mysterious entities inaccessible to science. They are an evolutionary product and also include non-human animals. But the possibility of a Darwinian reconciliation between a view of health as a property of the organism as an object and of the organism as a subject has been given scanned attention precisely because non-human health has been less than an afterthought in this debate see Matthewson and Griffiths 2017 As I will argue in this chapter, not only health and pathology are perfectly naturalistic concepts, but they also play a key role in evolutionary biology and it will help us extend the Darwinian revolution to include consciousness. Before I read the next section, let me have some water. Lessons from the Darwinian revolution The first chapter of this book is titled A Darwinian philosophy for the science of consciousness. Precisely because the so-called emergence in the 1990s of a science of consciousness has at best been a science of human consciousness. From a naturalistic perspective, we can only truly claim to have established the Darwinian science of consciousness once we study consciousness as a natural rather than human phenomenon. And this must include all sentient animals. Unfortunately, consciousness appears to be one of the last biological phenomena that we have failed to integrate into the Darwinian revolution. As I noted in a preface, this project has been burdened by unfortunate epithets such as just source stories, demonstrating a resistance to the possibility of an adaptationist evolutionary process explanation of how the mind gradually came into existence. Levantin, 1998, himself, um, who has been one of the fiercest opponents of adaptationist explanations in biology, contributed to the skepticism when he argued that we know next to nothing about the evolution of the human mind, and probably never will. Such a pessimistic attitude is certainly not entirely unfounded, since consciousness appears to leave no fossil trace, making it seemingly impossible to trace its phylogenetic origins and reconstruct its raison d'etre through a historical narrative explanation. In this, however, consciousness is not alone, sharing a fate with a wide range of other complex biological phenomena that people thought could not be explained in Darwinian terms. Most notably of these is behavior which has been firmly integrated into modern evolutionary biology since the ethologist endogenized it within Darwin's explanatory framework. Paying close attention to the origins of the Darwinian paradigm and its extension to behavior will provide a number of useful lessons for cognitive ethology, which likewise endogenizes consciousness in a Darwinian view of life. I'll have some water again. 1.3.1 Darwinism and Teleonomy In trying to provide a Darwinian account of consciousness, we have to clarify what we mean by such a project. Above, I noted that the pathological complexity thesis rests on the Darwinian idea of a functionalist alternative to a false dilemma between externalist and internalist approaches to consciousness. Internalist explanations seek to explain features of a system in virtue of other features of that system, of processes, structures, organizations, and the development within it, rather than outside of it. Externalist explanations, on the other hand, aim to explain features of the system by recourse to the external, that is the environment. Godfrey Smith, 1996, calls them on outside-in explanations. Page 13. uh, 30. This distinction is not only relevant for categorizing different views of the mind, but also life itself, since many treat Darwinism mistakenly as an externalist program. Levontin has stated the alleged link between Darwinism and externalism, perhaps the most forcefully, arguing that the success of the Darwinian Project was due to its disentangling of internal and external forces that have previously been inseparable. See also Leontin, 11, 1997. Darwin broke with what Levantin called transformational theories of the past, such as Lamarck's 1984 theory of evolution that postulated change to individuals within their life histories arising from subjective, or what we may call internal forces, such as will and striving. I note here that this date refers to um, a later reissue of a publication, uh, not the original printing. The Darwinian theory of the organism made the object, quote, not the subject of evolutionary forces, end quote, such as natural selection, random drift, that are, quote, autonomous and alienated from the alienated, alienated, excuse me, alienated, from the organism as a whole quote end 1985 page 85 to compete the complete darwinian revolution however Levontin maintained that the internal forces the subject side of organisms must be reintroduced let here, have a longer block quote by him Darwinism cannot be carried to completion unless the organism is reintegrated with the inner and outer forces of which it is both the subject and object. 1985, page 106. By this, Levantin did not mean subjective experience but rather how organisms as agents actively participate in their evolutionary path and construct their environments as an alternative to a traditional adaptationist view of life. These notions of agency and construction have been highly influential in modern attacks on Darwinism, but I am not here interested in the conceptual role of organisms as subjects for challenging the theoretical modeling of evolution. My interest lies in subjects as an evolutionary product to allow us to make sense of the evolution of subjective experience. As Godfrey Smith, 2017, notes in his discussion of Levantin, not only subjects are a cause of evolutionary change, but they're also its product. In advancing a gradualist view of the evolution of consciousness, Theoretically, less loaded terms like agency and subjectivity are useful for thinking about organisms as being more or less subject-like. They can, as Godfrey Smith, um, 2017, page 1 states, can realize subjectivity to a greater or lesser degree. While subjectivity may appear similarly elusive as consciousness, it does not similarly suffer from an overabundance of theoretical frameworks. We can, as Godfrey Smith, 2019 argues, use Lewontin's distinction between objects and subjects to bridge the gap between matter and mind. The history of life includes the history of subjectivity, and subjective experience is the experience of a subject, page two. And in doing so, we may be able to carry the Darwinian revolution to its completion. Unlike Levantin, however, I do not see a conflict between adaptationism and an explication of the subject side of organisms. As this book hopes to demonstrate, it is precisely within a Darwinian view of organisms that we will be able to make sense of subjectivity. This does not mean that we can't recognize that evolutionary biology has been dominant by externalist modes of uh, dominated by externalist modes of explanation, the features of the organism being explained in terms of their adaptive fit. To their external environment. Evolutionary biologists readily admit that, quote, the suspicion of internal causes in the domin- dominant neo-Darwinian culture ran so deep that every internalist idea, no matter how reasonable, was treated as an appeal to vitalism. Stoltzfus, 2019, page 46. <coughs> but we should distinguish the idealization choices made by some modelers from a deeper commitment to the necessity of an externalist view of adaptations. After all, there's plenty of modeling work done by evolutionary biologists that can be seen as internalist, such as the study of game theoretic dynamics that emerge from the structure of a population rather than its external environment. See, for instance, the Relny 1997, uh, page 56 Indeed, it is a mistake to think of adaptationalism and externalism as a one-package deal. As I shall argue, we can straightforwardly follow Storelney's 1997 suggestion to decouple adaptationism from the externalism and consider the two separately. Many of the arguments against adaptationism are really arguments against its externalist versions, that use a so-called lock-and-key model of the adaptation between organisms and their environments, a criticism that need not apply to other versions. Modern evolutionary biology recognizes plenty of feedback between organisms and the species-specific environments in which natural selection takes place, such as Brandon's 1990 notions of selective environments and ecological environments, which can be distinguished from an organism-neutral, externalist view of, environment. The external features that matter to the evolutionary trajectory of the organism are themselves causally dependent on the organism. No longer do modern evolutionary biologists see adaptations in the externalist design sense of a natural theologian such as Paley, 18.2, who argued that animals are proof of God's design plan with species being fitted to pre-existing external niches. As with many scientific concepts, the concept of adaptation came to be redefined, or rather explicated, in a naturalistically unproblematic sense, referring to whatever is produced by natural selection, even if such design appears inefficient and wasteful. See Griffiths and Gray, 2001, page 209. Much of the opposition from Neo Darwinians to Gould's and Lewontin's uh, criticism of adaptation was based on a mismatch between a usage of the term, its original pre Darwinian sense, and its modern explication, which already included at least some of the features of feedback between organism and the environments that were alleged to be lacking in the modern Neo Darwinian view of life. Instead of seeing Darwinism as an externalist theory of organismal traits, that replaced previous vitalist and romanticist modes of thinking that were confused between internal and external forces, we should see it as a teleonomic rejection of a false dilemma between internalist theories, such as Lamarck's and a strongly externalist view of organisms being designed by a benevolent God to feed the environments, by providing us with an inherently dynamic or interactionist picture of the living world. By teleonomic, I am here employing Pittendrieg's 1958 coinage of the term as a naturalistically unproblematic Darwinian replacement for older and mistaken teleological notions about the purposefulness, design, and normativity of life, which is why I noted above that my notion of pathological complexity could alternatively have been called teleonomic complexity. By understanding organisms as goal-directed systems or Darwinian agents evolved to maximize their fitness, our understanding of health, just like our understanding of adaptation and design, will come to be transformed. As I shall argue in this book, we can build a theory of the organism as both an object and a subject with the tools of modern state-based and behavioral life history theory, which does not, as Levontin objected to, treat organisms as machines with mosaic-like traits, but rather as agents having to deal with integrated bundles of trade-offs in organismal design. It is precisely this telenomic theory that will bring out the subject side of organisms. With this, let us now turn to Darwin's own speculations about the evolution of mind. I'll have some water again. Excuse me. 1.3.2 Early Darwinian views of mind. As the approach in this monograph is inspired by Darwin, it will be hardly surprising that Darwin himself rejected a dualist view of the mind, both in a metaphysical sense and in the phylogenetic sense of a sharp dividing line between us and other animals. Following the success of his 1859 book on the origin of species, he published two further very influential books in which he sought to defend a continuity view between us and other non-human animals. In his The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, Darwin, 1871, argued that, quote, the lower animals, like man, manifestly feel pleasure and pain, happiness and misery, end quote, page 39, and that, Quote, there is no fundamental difference between man and the higher mammals in the mental faculties. Page 35. And in The the expression of the emotions in man and animals, Darwin, 1872, went on to vastly expand his hypotheses on the evolution of mind, in particular the emotions. But while Darwin urged us to think about the mind in terms of evolutionary continuity, he deliberately avoided public speculation on the very origin of mind and life, noting, quote, I must promise that I have nothing to do with the origin of the primary mental powers any more than I have with that of life itself. 1859 page 207. Yet it is clear that the evolution of consciousness sincerely troubled him and some of his early notes revealingly contained the question How does consciousness commence? And where pain and pleasure is felt, where must be consciousness? Three question marks to emphasize that. Um, So this quote suggests that even Darwin speculated about the origins of sentience. Later, he repeated his resistance to explaining the origin of life and mind as problems that ought to consider us uh, now quote in what manner the mental powers were first developed in the lowest organisms is as hopeless as inquiry as how life itself first originated these are problems for the distant future if they are ever to be solved by man end quote 1871 page 36 but as with the origins of life early darwinians um, were immediately spurred on to think about the origin of mind and to add some comment here I think Darwin himself um, I think was very optimistic here he rather wanted to avoid tying his project to the most speculative enterprises um, he wanted to um, yeah, avoid the charge that his whole theory is speculative because he engages in speculation about some particular co- very complex phenomena in different places. Um, so indeed, the idea of thinking about the mind as a product of evolutionary forces immediately influenced important figures such as Herbert Spencer, Thomas Henry Huxley, Ernst Heinrich, he- he- Philip August Tackel typically just called, called Ernst Haeckel, uh, George John Romanes, William James, Conway, Lloyd Morgan, James Mark Baldwin, and John Dewey, who all substantially contributed to an early evolutionary understanding of the mind. What we saw in the decades after Darwin, Ginsburg, and Yerblonka, 2019 note, was that, quote, all psychologists, philosophers, and biologists who considered Mental evolution and evolutionary origins of mentality explained it in terms of natural selection. Page 71. Indeed, it was common at this time to think that the mysteries of the mind could be unveiled by viewing them through an evolutionary lens. Spencer, for instance, insisted that, quote, If the doctrine of evolution is true... The inevitable implication is that mind can be understood only by observing how mind is evolved. 1870, page 291. Moreover, both Dewey and Spencer endorsed the continuity thesis between life and mind that influenced my own. The mind is seen as the natural consequence of the evolution of complexity. Furthermore, Romanus speculated in some detail that pleasure and pain may be the key to understanding the place of consciousness in nature. Here, block quote. By Romanus, possibly, however, and as a mere matter of speculation, the possibilities worth stating in whatever way the inconceivable connection between body and mind came to be established The primary cause of its establishment, or of the dawn of subjectivity, may have been this very need of inducing organisms to avoid the deleterious, and to seek the beneficial. The raison d'etre of consciousness may have been that of supplying the condition to the feeling of pleasure and pain, 1883, page 111. Evolutionary thinking naturally leads itself towards a view in which sentience constitutes the origins of consciousness that organisms would evolve to value states and behaviors that increase their own fitness and avoid those that are detrimental to their health appears not at all mysterious from a Darwinian point of view unfortunately discussions of consciousness and its evolution in both humans and non-human animals went out of fashion In the early 20th century. This was largely as a result of the rise of the behaviorist program, coming from Watson, and the more radical behaviorism of Skinner, who turned American psychology into the study of mere behavior, banning consciousness from science. But while their official doctrine has been all but abolished, their influence in the study of consciousness remains alive and well. In the following, we will take a closer look at the rise of behaviorism, classical ethology, and Griffin's eventual call for cognitive ethology in order to understand what it means to take a truly Darwinian approach to life and mind. 1.3.3. Jamesian psychology and the rise of behaviorism. To understand the rise of behaviorism, one must understand the status of psychology at the beginning, of the 19th century. One name that has perhaps been influenced uh, the science of consciousness more than any other is that of a forementioned American philosopher and psychologist William James. James is often credited for turning psychology into a discipline independent from philosophy, with his 1890 textbook, The Principles of Psychology an achievement that made him the so-called father of American psychology in the eyes of many. In the early development of psychology as a science, consciousness played an important role. So it should be hardly surprising that James is also prized as the, quote, father of modern consciousness studies, Ginsburg and Blanca, 2019, page 41. Unfortunately, James had little to say about consciousness or its evolutionary origins, despite his interesting speculations about consciousness as the emergence of a new kind of evaluative relative agency and his emphasis on a functionalist view of the mind. His explanatory target was ultimately human consciousness, which he believed was undeniable, almost unique in kind, and could be studied through the method of personal introspection. The focus of psychology on consciousness, however, quickly came to be questioned. With the further development and success of psychological experiments, appeals to subjective states were less and less seen as necessary to justify the value of experimental research. Borkhardt, uh, 1985, page 9914. The behaviorist program that tried to banish all mental concepts from psychology and turn the science of the mind into a science of behavior can be seen as a natural outcome of this trend, the functionalism coming to be abandoned. However, this did not mean that the behaviorists were anti-Darwinian, at least not initially. Indeed, unlike James, who sent up psychology around human consciousness, the behaviorists positively emphasized the importance of studying non-human animals due to their evolutionary continuity with us. It is unfortunate that Watson, who is usually credited as being the father of the behaviorist movement, is often demonized and misdescribed when attention is given to his early work, quote, Presentations are usually brief and frequently contain a variety of errors. Todd and Morris, 1986, page 71. Rather than treating behavior as a black box, Watson showed a keen interest in the neurophysiology of animals, dissecting them with great care and experimental detail. However, after a decade of rigorous and methodologically diverse work on animal behavior, Watson was ultimately fed up with having to justify the value of his research after being repeatedly faced with the skeptical question of what his work could possibly teach us about animal uh, human consciousness. Now, This should immediately remind us of the question not uncommon in 21st century human consciousness science and the philosophy of mind regarding what the bearing could possibly be of work on animal consciousness. Watson's response to his detractors could hardly have been more Darwinian. In his 1913 paper Psychology as the Behaviorist views it, the founding manifesto of the behaviorist tradition that was meant to put these critics to rest, Watson explicitly defended the Darwinian view that there is, quote, no dividing line between man and brute. Page 158. To understand behavior as a natural rather than human phenomenon, he maintained, was how we could only truly advance a science of behavior as a natural phenomenon. Those inspired by Jamesian psychology, he harshly accused of being stuck in a pre darwinian mindset. Block quote here by John Watson, to make consciousness as the human being knows it, the center of reference of all behavior, forces us into a situation similar to that which existed in biology in Darwin's time. 1913, page 124. To understand the phenomenon of life, biologists readily recognized that an exclusive look at humans would lead us to a biased picture, if not because of its complexity, then because of their appeal to thinking of the human body plan as perfect or higher than other species. What was needed to truly revolutionize our understanding of life as a natural phenomenon was an evolutionary approach based on phylogeny, the comparative method, and sound ecological thinking. Yet, early work in evolutionary biology was initially held back by its focus on the question of human descent. The starting point was perhaps not surprising in a historical sense, since a sharp dividing line between humans and the rest of nature was considered to be the greatest challenge to Darwin's theory of natural selection. An assumption of human uniqueness had to be overcome. After the continuity between humans and apes was settled, biologists were finally able to put humans in their place in nature. That is, are one among many species. Man was the front. In trying to understand biological phenomena, biologists would henceforth use the comparative method gathering evidence from many different species of animals and plants alike to learn general lessons about life. But from the perspective of Darwinism, as a research program that placed us alongside, rather than above all other life forms, this early focus on humans must have seemed strange. As Watson, 1913, put it, Man sees to be the center of reference. Page 125. In arguing against the psychology, against psychology as the quote science of the phenomenon of consciousness, Watson provided us with uh, Darwinian arguments that very well apply against the top-down, human-centric focus of the so-called science of consciousness of today. But before we turn to Griffin's cognitive ethology as an attempt to develop a bottom-up biological study of the mind. Let us first look at the classical ethologists in order to understand how they extend the Darwinian revolution towards behavior. I'll just have some water. Thank you. One point three point four Ethology, Health and the Darwinization of Behavior. In the introduction to the philosophy of biology, Sorelny and Griffiths, 1999, define ethology as the, quote, study of animal behavior under its normal ecological conditions, as opposed to unusual laboratory conditions and from an evolutionary perspective. Page 385. And this is certainly how many now think about it, as a tradition that was in opposition to the lack of ecological and evolutionary thinking shown by the behaviorists. And one that has now largely been superseded by behavioral ecology. But there was a more philosophical conviction that motivated its founders, one of a teleonomic view of life. And this has largely gone unnoticed. When one hears the term ethology, inevitably the names Conrad Lorenz, Nicholas Tinbergen and Carl von Frisch come to mind as the joint receivers of a Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1973 for their involvement in the establishment of ethology and their discoveries of, quote, organization and elicitation of individual and social behavior patterns. Nobel Prize Outreach 2021. Famously, Lawrence studied the imprinting behavior of gray geese who show uh, an innate instinct to bond with the first moving entity they encounter, whereas von Frisch was one of the first to study the waggle dance used for communication by bees. Tin Belgen, who is uh, more well known than the others, primarily due to his involvement in the spread of ethology through the Anglosphere, spent much of his time studying the so-called uh, fixed action patterns, such as the egg rolling um, of the Greylock, geese Goose, Sibir, 2020. But it is not a work on instincts and other proto-cognitive capacities that is of relevance to this book. Neither am I interested in the philosophical objections to the study of subjective experience. The reason we look here at the classical ethologists is the same reason we looked at Watson's motivation for the behaviorist manifesto. That is to emphasize a Darwinian principle that motivated the origins of their approach. Both the ethologists and the behaviorists wanted to establish an objective science of behavior in which we rely on our bottom-up approach that emphasizes the study of simple behaviors in order to understand more complex ones. But the ethologists hardly saw the behaviorists as Darwinians at all. This is ironic, considering that both the early behaviorists and ethologists used Darwin to motivate their approach. However, we can readily resolve this puzzle. Whereas the behaviorists emphasize the alleged externalist explanatory style of Darwin's theory of natural selection, ethologists emphasize the theory itself, with its emphasis on function, survival value and evolutionary phylogeny as sources of mechanisms to deal with the environments faced by organisms. This teleonomic perspective is nicely drawn out in a press release from the Karolinska Institute. Which announced the Nobel Prize for the founders of ethology, and described their approach in a very Lorenzian manner as a Darwinian way of a out of a dilemma between the behaviorist externalism and the vitalist insistence on exter- internalist forces. Um, and I here quote partially because this unfortunately is the end of this preview. During the first decades of the century. Research concerning animal behavior was on its way to be stuck in a blind alley. The vitalists believed in the instincts as mystical, wise, and inexplicable forces inherent in the organism governing the behavior of the individual. On the other hand, reflexologists interpreted behavior in a one sided mechanical way, and behaviorists were preoccupied with learning as an explanation of all behavioral I'm not sure exactly how the quote continues, but diversity, right? And, they, and what the ethologists here offered was a way out of this dilemma by treating Darwin the Darwinian approach to behavior as a dynamical one, um, where behavior evolved in changing environments and between changing organisms with the environments. And similarly to this in this book, I argue that we need a Darwinian approach to consciousness that really looks closely at the function, the purpose, the benefits consciousness brings organism in their ordinary ecological lives. What problems is it helping them to solve? Yeah, so I hope um, you've enjoyed this reading. I'm sorry that my voice uh, is not uh, perfectly cured just yet from having the flu a few days back. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this content. Um, I will upload a talk I gave on this book in a future session. Um, but yes, I, I very much hope you enjoyed this. And If you are interested in this book, uh, I hope, of course, that you will consider buying it or perhaps renting it somewhere um, yeah and otherwise uh, i hope you have a good week uh, if you're interested in contact and please subscribe and yeah i hope uh, to see you again